Morning. Happy Mother's Day. Especially you, Mom. Uh, today's scripture reading is Colossians 3, verses 11 through 17. It's on page 1167 of your pew Bibles. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is, in, Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God has chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, we were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, good morning, everyone. We are today beginning a, a brief series. And the name of the series, I just love the name of the series. Clyde. Can you all do that with me? Come on, everybody. Clyde. That's right. We're doing a series... That was funnier uh, this morning when I rehearsed it in my head. I thought it was funny. Apparently not. So we're beginning a series called Collide. And when you hear that word collide, what are the, the kinds of images that come to your mind? I, I wasn't, no, I'm not calling on anybody, Mike. Thank you for the, that was a rhetorical question. I wasn't, Mike answers these questions when I say them, raises his hand. Uh, no, um, Mike, I'd, I'd love to talk with you later about whatever it was that you had in mind. Uh, but the word collide, I think a lot of us have probably negative connotations when you hear the word collide. Maybe you think of, maybe this happened to you, maybe yesterday you were running late, you were, you hadn't gotten anything for your mother yet, and so you're running around town trying to pick up a card, and, and you're, you're driving into ShopRite, and there's all this traffic, and, and, and you collide, you have a fender bender with somebody else who was also in a hurry to try to find a card for their mother. So there's that kind of a collision, like a, a fender bender kind of collision. Maybe when I say the word collide, uh, you're a big science fiction freak like myself, and so you think apocalyptically, you think of some massive asteroid traveling through the universe at millions of miles an hour and then colliding with a planet and bringing an end to all known civilization. I don't know, maybe that's the kind of thing that you think of when you hear the word collide. But the word collide can also have positive connotations too, right? There are positive collisions when peanut butter and jelly collide. That's a good collision. When chocolate chips and cookies collide, that is a beautiful collision. So it's actually in that light, I want us to think of the word collision. It can be very positive. In fact, did you realize that all life on the planet is, in, in some, one sense, 
the result of a beautiful collision that's constantly happening. So, you know, all of life on earth is dependent upon the sun and the energy that comes from the sun and the the sun and comes and the light comes and photosynthesis happens and turns it into energy and all that. But the light that comes from the sun is coming from a constant collision. Fusion energy is going on here where where I think it's hydrogen atoms, something like that, are constantly colliding. And when those atoms collide, it produces this tremendous amount of energy. And what I want to look at today is what this series is about, is we are going to be looking at the core values and core commitments of our church. The core values and the core commitments of our church. Now, if you've been through our orientation class um, this, some of this might sound familiar. You get a little bit of a fire hose method in our orientation class. But we look at the, the core values and the core commitments. Now, our core commitments, these are just sort of the, the, the things where if you were to ask, you know, what, what do I do to get involved in Rivervale Community Church? If I'm going to be involved, what, what, are, you know, what does that even mean? What are the things that, you know, broadly speaking? And what we like to say is, look, there's three, three ways we encourage you to get involved, Right? In the big picture, there's worship, connect, serve. Worship, connect, serve. We encourage you to get involved in in all of these three areas, to, to, to be involved in our worship services, to come to church on Sunday morning to make that one of your commitments, to be involved in the other services that we hold throughout the year. That's that's worship. Then connect. Then we encourage you to, to be intentional about connecting with people, your church family, at some point outside of Sunday morning. So this is where we offer our community groups. That's uh, one of the main ways in which we encourage you to get involved and consistently meet and interact with people in the church. We have, uh, right now there's a men's study going on Saturday mornings. We have events coming up. We've got game night coming up. We have all kinds of different events that, that happen throughout the year. And we just encourage you to connect. That's one of the ways in which we encourage you to get involved. And, and if you, so that's worship, there's connect, and then there's serve, right? We encourage you to serve. There are many different ways in which you can serve in the ministries of this church. So worship, connect, serve. Broadly speaking, to get involved, that's how you, you get involved. So those are our, our, our commitments, we call them, core commitments, but then there are our core values, and values, these aren't really things that you do as much as they embody everything that you do. A, a value is something that, sh- that, if it's really a value, will permeate everything that you do. So what we're looking at today is, is what happens when our core commitments and our core values collide, right? What happens when our core values and our core commitments collide. And what I want to suggest is that when they are colliding, they are a little bit like the fusion energy that happens inside of a sun, inside of a star that can produce a tremendous amount of energy. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at each of these core commitments. Today, we're going to look at the core commitment of worship. Next week, we're going to look at connect. And the next week, we're going to look at serve. Unless I end up spending two weeks on one, I'm not really sure yet. But that's the basic idea. And we're going to see then how the core values uh, collide with each of these commitments. And the core values, and these will be unpacked as we move forward, the core values are being gospel-centered, community-oriented, and outwardly-faced. Gospel-centered, 
community-oriented, and outwardly faced. And these aren't so much things we do as much as they are values that we want to permeate everything that we do. So what we're looking at this morning is what happens, what happens when the commitment of worship collides with being gospel-centered, community-oriented, and outwardly faced. What will our worship services look like? What kind of feel will they have and ought they have when these values are colliding? So let's start with gospel-centered. What does gospel-centered worship look like? And there, there are a lot of ways we could answer this for sure. Um, what I want to do is I just want to uh, read for you a passage from the book of 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, this is a place where Paul very explicitly explains what the gospel is. The, the gospel is something that just permeates the scriptures. It just permeates the Bible. It's almost just there, taken for granted. Um, well, not really taken for granted as much as it's, it's just what, it's the energy that drives everything that is being said and done throughout the scriptures. But then you get these few places where it's, it's spelled out a little bit more specifically. And so Paul does this at the end of his letter of First Corinthians. I, I think in First Corinthians is a letter where he talks about a lot of things. He gets into a lot of different issues. And then at the end, I think he's feeling like, okay, I've talked about a lot of different things, but I really need to bring this home. I need to remind them what this is all about. And so listen to what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning verse 1. He says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So he's he says there's this gospel, and now he's going to explain what is it. What, what, if you're just going to kind of try to summarize it as quickly as you can, what is the gospel? And here's what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Right? Hear that? This is what I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, what he's saying is this is core. This should be at the very core of what you are doing. So, he said, this is a core value. What is this, he says. This I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So we see right here him summing up what is the gospel. It's that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and on the third day he rose from the grave. And what we're suggesting here is that this is our core value. It's that everything that we do revolves around this. Everything that we do, everything in our worship services point to or flow out of this. And, of course, there are many, many, many implications of what the gospel is. That's pretty much what we spend our time doing whenever we gather on a Sunday morning. But it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the, is the center of the gospel and that which our worship services are to be oriented around. Now, I want us to notice something that he says here that's very instructive. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. 
Of course, we need to remember at this point, the New Testament wasn't written. Paul was writing the New Testament. So here, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And so what he's alluding to then is another important part of what it means to be gospel-centered in your worship. And that is to realize that everything in the Bible is ultimately pointing towards Jesus. Everything in the Bible is ultimately pointing towards Jesus. That The Bible is a story. A story that unfolds in which Jesus is the climax of the story. Uh, and, and so, as I will often say, the Bible is not simply a book of timeless truths. It's not, like an, it's not simply an owner's manual for life. You know, some of us, we, we, we kind of approach the Bible like an owner's manual for life, right? So you have some sort of problem, sort of issue, and then you go to look it up in the owner's manual, right? Well, the problem is, is that it's not really organized very well. Have you ever, ever thought about that? If it's an owner's manual for life, it's not really organized very well, right? I mean, if it was like an owner's manual, you'd, you'd go to the table of contents, and it would be like, you know, how to deal with marital conflict, page 362, right? Uh, yeah, uh, how to, to raise teenage children, right? And that, that'd be like a really, really long section, right, in the owner's manual. Right, but that's not the way it's organized, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I mean, what on earth is going on here? If you approach the Bible, that's why I think a lot of people just get confused with what is going on with the Bible. We gotta read, it's not an owner's manual. It's not, it's not this manual that, that reveals these timeless truths. It is a story that finds its climax in Jesus. And as you read through that story and understand that story, you will find all the truth that you need for your marriage, for raising your children, you'll find all of that, but you'll only find it when you read it in the context of this story and see Jesus as the climax of it. In a few weeks, we're going to begin a new series. I'm going to be going through the book of Exodus, just going to be going through that for several months, and the book of Exodus itself is a story, right? It's a story about the Israelites. They're in captivity in Egypt, and they are delivered out of captivity from Egypt. It is a story but as we read it, we need to realize it is a story within a much larger story. That if you even want to understand the book of Exodus, you've got to see how it fits into this overarching narrative of which Jesus is, is ultimately the climax. What it means to be gospel-centered is that in our worship services, you're always going to see us drawing from the scriptures how this points to or flows out of who Jesus is. When you read in the Old Testament about the temple, which we will come to in Exodus, we will, of course, draw out the fact that the temple was a place where heaven and earth was to intersect. And that came to its greatest fruition in the person of Jesus, where it was no longer a building in which the Spirit came and intersected with humanity, but in the person of Jesus. We will, we will look at the, the sacrificial system. You read about all these sacrifices going on in the Old Testament. And, of course, all of that is pointing to this idea that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. You read through uh, about the kings. You read about King David and all of that. And, and everything that happens in there is ultimately pointing to the ultimate king, which is Jesus. So gospel-centered worship means that in everything that we do, it is oriented around what has taken place in and through Jesus as the climax of the story. Now, here's what I think is a really important point that emerges if we just take a step back from this. When we understand what's going on with the Bible, here, here's what it is. And it's very freeing for me as a pastor. Here's what it is. Primarily, when, when I get up here to preach, I love this. I'm not here to tell you what you should do. That's not primarily what, what I'm here to do. I'm, I'm not primarily here to come up here 
and tell you all what to do. You know what? And that's a good thing, because I'll be honest, I don't really know what to do. I mean, do I look like I know what to do? But my, my primary responsibility is not to come up here and tell you what to do. You see, when the gospel is the center of your preaching, what you're real, you're not here to tell people what to do. You're here to show them what God has done. I'm here to help you see and understand not what is you're supposed to do, but what God has done for you. And actually, out of that, your life will change. I'm not here primarily to tell you what to do. I'm primarily here to help you understand what God has done, is doing, and will do for you and for this world. And this is why the gospel, the word gospel means good news. It's good news. It's not good advice. I'm not here to give you good advice. I will. Advice will emerge out of a lot of the stuff that I say, but that's not primarily what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to deliver the good news, which is not telling you what to do. It's helping you to understand and appreciate what God has done. You know, I, I was in Colorado just a few weeks ago visiting family, and we went to, uh, we visited a new church. My parents were trying to uh, find a, a church, and we visited this, this one church, and afterwards my father kind of asked me what I thought, and I, I actually liked a lot of the service. Um, it was actually a very liturgical kind of service, which I find myself very much drawn to. Um, but then he asked me, well, what did you think of the sermon? And, and I told him, I said, you know what? I basically agreed with everything that was said. I mean, it was great. Everything the minister said was, was fantastic. And he goes, but, yeah, he's like, I can tell there's a but. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I just don't think that's what Sunday morning's for. What they did is not really what Sunday morning's for. Because it was entirely about what you and I should do. It was, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And I agreed with all of it. I mean, I was, amen, all of it, but... Yeah, but, but why should we do this? Why should we do all of these things that we're saying? It's because of what God has done. And that's what we do Sunday mornings. We're here to reorient ourselves around the reality of what God has done. Listen, you don't need me to tell you what to do. I'm here to help you realize what God has done. You know, today is Mother's Day. Mothers, you don't need me to tell you what to do. I don't know what. Today is Mother's Day. This is a day in which we celebrate mothers. We lift them up. We praise them. I hope you take the time to do that. And why why do we do this? Why do we take the time to celebrate our mothers? And it's very simple. It's because parenting is really, really hard. Come on. I should get an amen from that. I know we're not an amen kind of church, but I should get one with that. Parenting is really hard. The reason we lift up our moms and we praise them and we thank them is because parenting is really hard. You all, you know those, those little buttons that you can get, that you can put on your desk, and, and you press it, and, and they're red and white, and you press it, and it goes, that was easy, right? When you become a parent, you just throw that button out because there's nothing easy anymore. Being a parent is incredibly challenging, and I, I don't know, maybe every generation says this, so I'm going to say it, and then probably they'll say it in the next generation too. But I'm going to say that I think this is one of the hardest times to raise children. And I'll give you a reason for this. One of the reasons I think it's so hard is precisely because we live in a pluralistic society. And what it means to live in a pluralistic society is this, is that no matter how you parent your children, most people think you're doing it wrong. Because in a pluralistic society, 
your view is always a minority. Everybody's view is a minority and a pluralistic. You have many views. You have many different views, and, and there's only a few people that, that see it the way you do, and everybody else sees it differently. And so no matter how you parent, most people think you're doing it wrong. It's a very difficult time. It's a di- very difficult time to parent. This is why you, you, don't, you don't need me, moms, you don't need me to tell you what to do. But I think you do need me to remind you what God has done. And I want to remind you of that. I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you that you were created in the image of God. God created you. God knew your name before you were born. God created you unique and special God created you with everything that you need to be a mother. God created you. God is with you. God created you. First thing I want to tell you. Second thing I want to tell you that God has redeemed you. When you put your faith in Christ, God has redeemed you. And, and what that means, and this is, the, this is the challenging part, is I also have to remind you, moms, you are broken. You are. Moms, you are, you are broken. We all are. We are all broken. We are all sinful. We all go the wrong way. We, we, we all do things that we shouldn't. We all parent in ways that we shouldn't. We, we all do things that are wrong. And listen to me, no matter how hard you try, you're always going to mess up because you're broken. But what I want to remind you of is that God has come to redeem you because he loves you. The heart of the Christian faith is that on the cross, Jesus died to forgive you of your sin so that you are right with God. And do you know what that means? Do you know what that means, moms? Your worth and your value is not in how you perform. Your worth and your value is not in how successful you are at work. Your worth and your value is not in how successful you are as a parent. That's not where your worth and your value is. When you stand before God, God doesn't say, well, I'm going to love you based on how your children turn out. He doesn't say, I'm going to love you based on your success in any other area. He's just going to say, I love you because I love you. Your worth And your value is based in nothing other than the fact that you are a child of God on the basis of grace through faith. Moms, that's what you need to be reminded of. You need to be reminded that Jesus died for your sins. You need to be reminded that he rose from the grave demonstrating that this God who loves us is also sovereign over all things. Hear that. The God who died for you is also sovereign over all things. Not only does he love you, but he's in control of all things. And if he's had victory over death, whatever you are facing as a mom today, it is not too big. It is not too big for our God. I need to remind you of the gospel. I, I, I don't need to tell you what to do. You know, and, and part of what emerges from this, you see, one of the reasons why I don't need to just tell you what to do, it's, it's not that I don't want you to be a good parent. I'm not saying that. 
But here's what it is. It's that being a great parent, being a great person for that matter, being a great parent, being a great person is not so much about what you do. It's primarily a matter of who you are. Being a, a great parent isn't primarily a matter of what you do. It, it, you see, it's not about what's the right method. What are the right tools? What are the tools and the methods that I need to have to be a great parent? They're, those are helpful. They, they, those are good. But listen, primarily, what makes a person a great person or a great parent, it's not so much a matter of what you do as a matter of who you are. Now, what you do flows out of who you are. That's the thing. What you do flows out of who you are. But the focus here, what we need to understand, is it's more a question of, who are you? We've got to put the, the cart before your horse, before the horse. And so the question here we need to ask ourselves is, what is it? What is it that shapes you into being a good person? What is it that shapes you into being the kind of person that will be a good parent? And here's what it is. What shapes you into being a good parent person, what shapes you into being a good parent, isn't knowing what to do. It's being overwhelmed by what God has done for you. What will continually shape you into the kind of person that could be a great person, a great parent, it's not knowing what to do so much, though that's helpful, as much as it is being simply overwhelmed by the reality of what God has done for you. And that, I believe, is what emerges in the passage that Patrick read for us. This passage that he read from the book of Colossians, Colossae was uh, a town in modern Turkey off the coast uh, of uh, the Mediterranean. And he's writing to the church in Colossae. And, and listen, listen to what he says here, because I think what emerges here is precisely what I'm saying. That what shapes you to be a good person isn't knowing what to do. It's a matter of being overwhelmed by what God has done for you. Look here in verses 12 and 14. It says, therefore... As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Right? So clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, and gentleness, and patience. Right? What is it talking about here? Right? It's, it's sort of giving you a picture of what you should be like. So that's sort of telling you what you should do. It's telling you the kind of person that you should be. Be compassionate and kind and loving and patient. Parents, isn't that a key one to parenting is patience? Right, so, so we get this idea of what we should be like and even how that pours into what we should do or flows out into what we should do, but I want you to notice the way he says this, right? It's the, the language that he uses is strange. He says this in verse 12. He says, clothe yourselves, put on compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I mean, that's kind of a weird way of saying it. No, he doesn't just say, hey, get your act together. He doesn't say, hey, be kind, be compassionate, be patient. Right? Come on, he doesn't just tell you what to do. It's weird language, just put it on. Clothe yourselves. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? How, how, how do we do this? 
We see this in verses 15 through 16. This is how you put on compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. And listen to this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts towards God. What he's saying is that the way in which you become a kind and passionate person is by allowing the word of Christ, the gospel, the good news to dwell in your heart. Friends, this is what gospel-centered worship is all about. What our goal is, is that through our worship, we would enable the word of Christ, the very gospel, to work and to dwell in our hearts. And I want you to notice something here because there's something uh, sort of curious about what this is saying. It's saying that through our worship services, notice the language that he's using here. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. So in other words, again, what he's saying is that and you see the elements here. It's talking about teaching. It's talking about singing. It's talking about the kind of things that we do in a worship service. And again, what he said, the, the point here isn't for you to be told what to do. The purpose is that through what we do, the word of Christ would dwell in your hearts. So everything that we do in gospel-centered worship is designed with this purpose of enabling the gospel to work inside of our hearts. Irenaeus, who lived in the second century, he lived about 100 years after Jesus. He says this, For the glory of God is a living man, and the life of a person consists in beholding God. Listen to that. The life of a person consists in beholding God. What Irenaeus is saying is that the more you behold God, the more that you stand in awe of the reality of who God is, the more you come alive. The more you become the very kind of person that God has created you to be, the more you become the kind of parent that God has called you to be. It's not by getting the latest methods on what to do. It's by beholding God and allowing the truth of the gospel to dwell in your hearts. So our first core value is to be gospel-centered, that everything we do in our worship services is with this one goal, that the word of Christ might dwell in our hearts more richly. The second core value we saw is to be community-oriented, community-oriented. So we've got this core commitment of being of worship, something that we do, and we want to be gospel-centered. And then secondly, we want to be community-oriented. What does it mean to be community-oriented in our worship? And, and here's, here's, in its most basic sense, it's saying that we believe in the importance of corporate worship. We believe it's important that we come together and worship. And I think it's really important that we highlight this now because it's very, 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 very tempting, isn't it, to go to church at Bedside Baptist. It's so tempting to go to church. I've been to church at Bedside Baptist, right? The the chairs are really comfortable, right? I mean, Bedside Baptist, it's so tempting. And here's why it's so tempting. Because it seems like you you can get all the elements of a corporate worship service. Right, I mean, you can go online and you can listen to sermons. You can, you can watch messages on your computer. You have, you know, there are thousands that you could watch on any given 
Sunday morning. So, so you, you can listen to and you can watch a service and, and you can turn on K-Love and you can just listen to, to worship music and, and sing and, and, and all of that. Right, it's really tempting. Why not just go to Bedside Baptist? Now, there's a lot that I could say about w- the importance of corporate worship, but there's something that emerges in this passage that I think is often missed. In fact, the uh, translators of the NIV also, it seems, may have missed it as well. Some later translations, most later translations, have all changed this. What you'll notice here is in verse 16, look at what it says here. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay? So that's the goal. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, here's what we need to see. Most of the later translations have realized this makes it sound like here that the teaching and the admonishing is one thing that is done and that the singing and the hymns is another thing that is done. But actually, that's not really what Paul's saying here. Grammatically, what he's actually suggesting here is that we teach and admonish one another through our psalms and our hymns and our singing. He's saying that we teach and admonish one another through our singing. What he's getting at here is that there is something incredibly powerful and special about singing together, singing these hymns, singing these songs, singing these truths, and hearing one another sing it. And that as we sing together, that can shape our hearts in a way that simply listening to music on your own can. Parents, I I said I wasn't going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to give you one thing. Parents, your kids need to see you and hear you singing songs of praise. They need to hear you and see you singing these hymns and these songs of praise. This is, this is why we're very intentional about keeping the children in the service until the message. We want them to be a part of the music. We want them to hear the music. They want, we want them to see us singing these truths, that that is part of what can actually shape their hearts. So this is community-oriented worship. We see the value of gathering together. And then, of course, another way in which that value has been reflected is with the renovation that we did, the gathering place. We believe it's important that we come here, and this isn't just a, an individual experience that we have, but we have the opportunity to be with one another before and after the service. So this is a value that we bring to this commitment of worship. So gospel-centered worship, community-oriented worship, and finally, outwardly-faced worship. Outwardly faced worship. What does that mean? Well, in its, in its most succinct, uh, I guess, way of saying it, is we need to remember that ultimately the church exists for those outside of the church. The church very much exists for those outside of the church. That at the very beginning when God, God called Abraham, you might say in some respects that's the beginning of the church, calling out a people, and it's clear that he called out the people of Abraham for a purpose, and that was to bring redemption and renewal to the rest of the world. The very purpose of calling out a people was for the renewal of the world. And so we exist not for ourselves ultimately, but for those outside of the church. And this, this is reflected in this passage if you look in, in verse number 11. It says, here, he's talking about within the Christian community, 
Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, we need to understand what's going on here. Paul is saying that when it comes to faith in Christ, all of a sudden, all of the cultural differences that people have no longer matter anymore. The cultural barriers that keep people from being able to get along, they just dissolve when our focus is on Christ. And of course, this was very important. The early Christian community was virtually all Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. And so when this movement begins to spread into a place like Colossae, Turkey, where it's mainly Gentiles, what this is getting at, I mean, everybody's coming, they're all from the outside. It's all outsiders coming into the church. It's outsiders, outsiders, outsiders coming in. And so the very letter of Colossians is something that emphasizes to us the importance of being outwardly faced, that we exist for those who aren't already in. And so what this means is as a church, we need to really value trying to bridge the cultural gap. Culture is always changing, and we always need to be looking for ways to connect with those around us. I think an important part of it is that we need to study the culture around us, not to criticize it, but to understand it. I think a, a lot of religious-oriented people, the tendency is to simply criticize culture rather than seeking to understand it. Right? Just because you understand it doesn't mean you agree with everything, but at least you're trying to understand where they're coming from. This is something that I'm always trying to do. In any message that I'm, any message that I'm teaching, uh, I'm always trying to figure out what would somebody who's outside of the church, what would they think of this? Would they understand what I'm saying? Uh, would they be offended by it? And if it's something that might offend them, I'm not going to shy away from saying it, but I am going to be careful in how I say it. And I'm going to seek to be respectful, right? We can, be in, we can disagree and be respectful. And so I will often say this. If I say something you disagree with, well, look, we love you. We want you to be here. We don't look down on you because you see things differently than we do. An important part of being outwardly faced is being respectful of those who disagree while still holding to what we believe. Let me, let me just kind of put it this way. Look, maybe you're here today because your mother dragged you. Maybe that's why you're here. You're here because your mom dragged you to church. Maybe you're here, maybe you're here out of respect for your mother who passed away 30 years ago. But you're here in church because you know she would want you to be here. Listen, I don't, I don't really, I don't care why you're here. We are just glad that you're here. You're welcome. We want to be a church that in everything that we'll do, we're always thinking about those on the outside. So these, these are our three core values, gospel-centered, community-oriented, and outwardly faced. And we want to make sure, we want these to collide with our worship. Let me just kind of end with this final exhortation. I want to encourage you, I really want to encourage you, make worship a priority. Make our Sunday morning services a priority. I would encourage you to make uh, coming to church a priority in the same way that from what I can tell around here this morning, you all make it a priority to put your clothes on in the morning. That's clear from what I can see here. You all make it a priority to put your clothes on in the morning. In fact, my guess is probably the only reason you're going to run out of the house without your clothes on is as if the house is on fire. I'm guessing that's about the only excuse your neighbors are going to buy is if the house is on fire. And I want to say, what, what if we had the same kind of attitude towards worship? Right? When we come to worship, the only reason we don't come to worship, okay, maybe, maybe your house, it can be not just your house is on fire. 
But it's a priority. We, we think about being a part of worship in the, as being as important and as natural as simply putting on our clothes. And, and again, I, I say this to you, not, not, not to guilt you. Remember, I'm not getting you to come here so that I can tell you what to do. This is about guilting you to come here so that we can browbeat you and tell you what to do. We want you to come so that you can remember what God has done for you. As I, as I often say, we don't come here to get God to love us. We actually come here to be reminded of the fact that He already does love us. We come here not to get God to love us, but in many respects we come here to get ourselves to love God. The problem isn't whether or not God loves you. The question is, do you love God? It's very, very easy, isn't it, for our hearts to wander? I'm just going to end with this, and I've shared this before. A couple of years ago, I went on sabbatical. So there were two months when I did not have to go to church. It had been probably 20 years since I'd been in that kind of situation where, I mean, you know me, I mean, I have to go to church, right? So I didn't have to go to church for two months. And I remember people asking me, like, you you think you're going to go? Are you going to just take the opportunity to just skip out of church and all of that? And I honestly didn't quite know. Let me tell you what happened. I went every Sunday. And it's not because I'm super spiritual. It's because I'm not. I'm not, and what I know about my own heart is that I'm prone to wander. And I know that if I don't, if I don't come and, and gather with the church community to worship God and to be reminded of the goodness of God, my heart could wander. I don't go for two months. I might not come back. We don't go to church to get God to love us. We go to get our hearts to love God, and we know that we are prone to wander. So I encourage you, make worship a priority in your family. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning, and we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for the good news that you love us that we are safe and we are secure in you. God, I pray that we would rest in that truth, that truth would dwell in our hearts, it would push aside all doubts and all fears and all insecurities, and it would enable us to become more and more the people that you've called us to be. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.